Welcome to the Baco County Pulse. This podcast is developed by the Virginia Association of Counties and shares with our listeners the pulse of Virginia County governments. I'm Joe Lurch, Baco Director of Local Government Policy, and your host for this episode. I think what we're going to call things, all things kind of environment um, and natural resources related. Uh, I'm joined here by Chris McDonald, our uh, VACO Director of uh, Government Relations. Chris, how are you today? Doing well. Happy to be back. So, yeah, because you've been on the road, and and maybe that's where we really need to start. Um, You were in um, Virginia Beach. You were at the Brock Environmental Center, which is kind of an amazing facility. You may want to say a word or two about that. Yeah, incredible facility. If you ever have the chance or you ever feel... Uh, driven to get out there. I can't recommend it highly enough. Just a beautiful facility right on the water, surrounded by little mini wind turbines. I mean, it is really a beautiful uh, spot, and especially a great place for the governor to have uh, announced his um, his 2020 kind of budget priorities when it came to natural resources yesterday. So what what was the big news? I mean, I've looked at press releases, and there's kind of a lot out there. Maybe you can maybe start at the high level, and then we can unpack it. Sure. So uh, a lot of big news obviously coming out there and a lot of really high dollar signs coming out for natural resources initiatives. And I guess the best way to kind of address this is to rewind a little bit to this summer uh, when the Chesapeake Bay uh, Watershed Implementation Plan or the Phase 3 WIP uh, was introduced. Um, for our listeners, as I'm sure you're aware, uh, the Phase 3 WIP is kind of our check-in for where the, uh, the Commonwealth of Virginia uh, is and where they need to be going in order to meet these um, water quality goals pertaining to phosphorus, nitrogen, and sediment in the Chesapeake Bay by 2025. So we already had a Phase 1, we had a Phase 2, and the Phase 3 was introduced this summer, kind of Again, providing a check-in as well as a roadmap forward for where we need to be going, how we need to reduce more in different industries, how local governments can do more, how agriculture can do more. Um, So the last couple of months since the release of that have really been geared into, all right, here are our goals, here's where we've been, here's where we're going, and how do we actually get there? Um, Since the release of the WIP this summer, there's been a lot of exploration of kind of this, this gap between you know, resources and needs. So there's a disparity between kind of the overarching need for local governments, for the agricultural industry, um, et cetera, and what we actually have. So yesterday really signaled uh, a really amazing kind of step forward on behalf of the Commonwealth for how we are going to be able to fund all of these projects going forward. Um, The governor announced um, really sweeping funding initiatives to tackle stormwater pollution, to tackle wastewater treatment, uh, to assist farmers implementing conservation practices to reduce farm runoff, including everything from uh, livestock exclusion practices to nutrient management plans. Um, They didn't really give us any numbers yesterday, but they signaled that it will be indeed historic. Yeah. So, you know, and and maybe to unpack it a little, so the you know, part of this this phase three whip is part of this regional uh, federal compact. So not just Virginia, but right. D.C., Maryland, Pennsylvania, and I guess to a lesser extent, uh, New York and West Virginia, because they're all part of the watershed, have to, have to contribute. And so this is kind of Virginia's plan on how do we meet these overall water quality goals to, to get the bay to the healthy state. Sure. And so, you know, in the history of this thing, um, you know, there's the kind of the three main sectors. There's kind of the the discharge from the sewage treatment plants. And, you know, Virginia was, I think, out ahead of most states several years back where the state and the locals um, ponied mm-hmm. up a total, of, I think, of about $1.2 billion to come up to these new nutrient standards. Yep. Uh, and then, you know, there's the ag sector, which it's never necessarily been like a, a, a 
I guess, a regulatory or legal requirement, but there's been a lot of cost share money, and you mentioned like livestock exclusion, um, things related to maybe best uh, nutrient management practices, and then of course stormwater, and you know that's where's where local governments are kind of on sure. the hook, and and you know I like to think of stormwater as it's kind of it's the smallest you know contribution to those pollutant loads, but it is growing, but it's the most costly because it it's just so distributed. So tell us a little bit about you know we you know Virginia really ponied up and got to these stringent standards on stormwater. And my understanding is there's a proposal to have us go even further on the, on the waste, wastewater treatment plants. There is. Uh, as you said, Joe, Virginia's actually done a pretty good job in the last several years as we've been trying to tackle these goals. Um, the wastewater sector, for example, has disproportionately carried kind of the weight for the Commonwealth. But, you know, it's kind of a it's a situation where they've done so well, they're now kind of being asked to, to do a lot more. Um, so they're in in the whip. There are a lot of kind of new mandates that are coming down the line um, that would really require, I mean, significant investment from local governments and waste in the wastewater sector to upgrade their facilities even further. Um, there are estimates that these upgrades would actually cost anything from 500 million in total up to a billion dollars to effectively upgrade their plants to meet the new goals that have been released in this phase three WIP. Um, now, I will say the. Uh, the governor's office has recognized that this is a really, really heavy lift that they're asking the wastewater sector to do. Um, and as a result, they are looking uh, at introducing a budget with a substantial increase in investment uh, for wastewater quality improvement funds, or WQIF funds, which would help alleviate this burden. Um, just this past uh, fall and summer, they actually did a needs assessment survey um, and saw that without the WIP, there was still about a $360 million need for wastewater facilities. Uh, funding um, and only about ten and a half million available. Um, so they're trying to kind of bridge that gap in this uh, upcoming budget. Again, we don't have the numbers yet. We'll learn more about that next week. Um, but they are trying to address it. That being said, that amount of funding still doesn't really even get close to what the overall need will be, particularly if the WIP is to be met. Um, as a result, the wastewater sector is kind of pursuing three different angles for how they're going to address this. Um, one is through regulation. Um, a notice of intended regulatory uh, action just went out actually um, just a week or so ago, um, and the wastewater sector has been asked to comment on it. So local governments uh, and wastewater industry um, have until January 9th to submit comments for what they actually want to do uh, or what they think about this uh, intended regulation. They're pursuing legislative options. That's still kind of in the air right now, obviously, with the session right in front of us. Um, everything's kind of being fine-tuned, so can't speak too much on that. Um, and then there is a, a small litigation piece um, where uh, a technical appeal has been filed uh, in the Hanover County Circuit Court um, on behalf of VAMWA, which is the Virginia Association of Municipal Wastewater Agencies, as well as three of their members. Um, that's the Town of Leesburg, the King George Service Authority, and the South Central Wastewater Authority, which includes Chesterfield County, Dinwiddie County, Prince George County, and the cities of Colonial Heights and the city uh, of Petersburg. Um, and this is more, this is less of a kind of hard-hitting lit litigation, as you may envision, but more of a technical um, step to ensure that nothing gets locked in until the wastewater um, sector can kind of wrap their head around what this is all entailing and make sure that the Commonwealth's numbers um, are actually in line with reality. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, for a lot of our members, beyond just the, the cost, I mean, there is a consideration, consideration for growth and economic development. 
because when you really ratchet down on these, you may limit the amount of growth of your of your suit treatment plants, how much flow you can take. So that is a concern, I think, for some of our members moving forward. Um, Stormwater. Now, there was a number I think you, you and I talked about earlier this morning where it could be kind of a his, historic confusion Absolutely. on what's known as the SLAF, the Stormwater Local Assistance Fund. Sure. So I mentioned earlier there was this WQIF needs assessment survey that went out this summer. Uh, kind of in parallel with that was a SLAF needs assessment as well. Um, it went out to all localities. Uh, unfortunately, there was not a incredibly robust participation just given the uh, the newness of this project as well as the timeline um, and the deadline to actually respond to it. But they determined that at least for the respondents, and there are uh, I think 146 projects that were uh, deemed to have responded, there was about a need of $281 million for SLAF projects um, between now and 2024. Unfortunately, in the state budget, there's only $10 million available. And even that $10 million, if you recall, last year uh, was really hard fought. It was stripped time and time again. So it was really a victory to even get that in. Now, recognizing that, um, to, the, to the credit of the governor and his secretary of natural resources, Matt Strickler, um, they realized that this need is something that, that has to be met. It can't just be ignored any further. Um, so they're proposing, as you said, historic levels of SLAF funding. Um, we've heard estimates anywhere from $100 million and above, which would be the largest investment in the history of this program. Um, obviously, if that comes to fruition, we'll be, we'll be working with our members to make sure that we jump on that since you know, biennial budgets are, are anything but certain, and uh, that sure. money can later be stripped again. Well, yeah, and there's going to be competing needs. I mean, Absolutely. obviously, education, transportation, a lot of stuff is a competing needs on the general fund. And, and you know, the governor's uh, introduced budget comes out next, uh, next Tuesday. We'll be there, and we'll be listening, and, and we'll be updating everybody. Uh, via our newsletter and probably a podcast. Um, Gage is shaking his head, yes. This is our, <laughs> our communications director here who, who helps with all these podcasts and, and really does a great job. Uh, you know, going back to the, the funding, you know, one thing that I've observed over the years is, is, you know, if there's extra money in the budget, you know, if times are looking good, you, you, you do it with, you know, cash and, and put it in the general fund. But sometimes when times are lean, you go to bonding. Um, and so it'll be really interesting to see, you know, does the state run up its credit card? Because I know they did that in the past for the, sure. for the sewage treatment plant upgrades and a little bit for SLAF. So I think that's, that's a good point. Um, one of the things that also I saw in the press release um, was about um, getting at energy efficiency and renewable energy in this, this loan fund. Can you yeah. explain a little bit about that? Yeah. So yesterday um, at this announcement down in Virginia Beach, they did announce uh, a new revolving loan fund that would allow uh, – private citizens, as well as local governments, to take advantage of what they're proposing to be about a $10 million pot for renewable energy or energy efficiency upgrades. Um, this is really intended to replace a, a really successful program um, from a couple of years ago called Virginia Saves, which leveraged these QECBs, or Qualified Energy Conservation Bonds, to uh, make very low interest, up to zero interest uh, loans to local governments who wanted to embrace energy efficiency or renewable upgrades. So that includes everything from new HVAC chillers to new boilers to renewable energy, you know, in the sense of, you know, uh, solar panels on the roofs of schools or a wind turbine out front. Um, so this is really exciting to see them trying to kind of go back to the drawing board and figure out a way to kind of recapture this excitement uh, and interest and generate a new program out of it. Yeah, that's great. You know, it, it reminds me, we were uh, up in Fairfax the other day, um, you know, with uh, 
with Fairfax officials, you're meeting with their um, legislative uh, delegation, and one of the things that they uh, announced that day, and they're very proud of it, is um, they have uh, made a huge um, commitment uh, putting towards uh, solar arrays on a lot of different public facilities, you know, county government buildings, um, recreational fields, schools. Um, and I think it's, as they touted, it's, it's the largest um, uh, multiple solar purchase power agreement, uh, you know, by, by locality. And Chris, I don't know, did you follow a little bit about that and what, and what they did in that? So I, I have not been uh, as up to speed on that as I think you have. I, yeah, I'd so, hate to step on yeah, your expertise well, you know, here. I, but I think, because one of the things I want to touch on, so it, it's, um, it, you know, they, they've done it with several solar providers, and, and one is actually a, a subsidiary of Dominion Energy, so i got to imagine that Dominion's kind of bought into this. Um, but they're looking at um, solar installations on 113 sites, uh, you know, roof-mounted, canopy, carport-mounted installations. Um, they estimate that this will generate um, uh, roughly, um, over the terms of the contracts, 1.73 million megawatt hours. Of course, now what does million megawatt hours sure. mean? I mean, that's just, you know, the amount of hours that, uh, you know, you're, you're getting from this clean, clean renewable source. So Fairfax was really uh, happy about it. Now, one way to, to do that is, is in their press release is they talk about that many megawatt hours is roughly equivalent to the um, electricity used by 213,680 homes in a single year. So once this gets to fruition, I think that will um, meet a lot of goals for Fairfax and, you know, in terms of reducing their energy costs. Um, they have some estimates on, on how much it will do that that's in the millions over the, over the potential yield over the life of the project. And then also meeting some of their, their carbon reductions. But, but getting at this issue of PPAs, and I'm going to go down a little rabbit hole here because you and I have worked on this. Right. So what is the state of purchase power agreements in Virginia in terms of, isn't there a cap? There is a cap. And, 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 and where are we at? And what do you think the prospects are or for, for doing that cap? And maybe explain what a PPA is and as it relates to why there's a cap um, related to, say, Dominion Energy or APCO. Well, uh, this cap has been in place for I don't know how many years, um, but for the last several years there has been really this this push to expand it because really we are getting closer and closer to hitting this cap, um, and especially you know as the Commonwealth has noted in their own energy plan, their robust investment and uh, dedication to renewable energy, and as local governments and the business community is getting more and more on board with this this PPA cap is becoming kind of a, a larger issue where we haven't hit it yet, but we're getting closer and closer. And there have been initiatives the last couple of years to either eliminate this entirely or to expand this. Um, and I think the General Assembly has expressed a lot of hesitancy to really kind of dive in on this because it really does affect so many different parties. And really, when you're getting into the, the finances of solar and whatnot, it, that is a Pandora's box to really open, uh, especially to try to take it on in you know, a 30-day session when you have a million other things coming your way. But given the election results from this November and given kind of the, the overarching change that we're going to see in the General Assembly, and in particular when it comes to a lot of their renewable energy and kind of, quote unquote, green policies, I think there is going to be an appetite and a real willingness to address this this session. Yeah, and I think, you know, for a lot of our members, it, it, it's an attractive um, scenario where you don't have to purchase and put the solar arrays up on your own. Sure. You're contracting with a third party. And they do all that upfront investment. And what you do by providing this site is you lock in on a rate um, that's a fairly attractive rate, but then also you're contributing to any sort of greenhouse um, gas reduction goals sure. that, that you may have and helping the state do that. So that's really good. So well, we're going to transition, I think, here because, you know, that's, 
that's uh, you know kind of at the smaller scale. But what we're really seeing here in Virginia, and as a lot of our members know, is the growth of utility scale solar. Right. Uh, and, and one of the things that was in um, the Grid uh, Modernization Act from 2018 uh, was a goal set there to doing 5,000 megawatts of solar. And, and to kind of give you, uh, our listeners, a concept, you know, one megawatt of solar in a utility-scale uh, setting takes up about 10 acres of land. So when you're talking 5,000 megawatts across the Commonwealth, that's 50,000 acres of land. So that's right. it's quite a bit of land, <laughs> um, but there is a lot of land available in Virginia for that. Um, and it really depends on where it is in terms of location in the grid. Is there capacity with the substations, which uh, can take that energy and take it for transmission? Um, you know, over the years, we, you know, you kind of started out small. We were seeing these five megawatt and twenty megawatt uh, facilities um, that were really part of the distribution locally. So, if somebody put these in, whether it was an independent power producer or the utility themselves, because Dominion's done these quite a few, and and I think APCO is now getting into this. Appalachian power, but now we're seeing these things that are 50 megawatts and above, and that's really getting into the transmission uh, uh, line. Of course, the, the largest one that was um, recently approved both by the SEC and by um, Spotsylvania County through a special use permit was a 500 megawatt facility right. uh, in Spotsylvania County. And, and you know, you know, these things have a real intersection at the local level in terms of not only the land use but the, but the tax implications. Uh, one of the things that we've been following uh, over the years is that um, the General Assembly um, several years ago mandated an 80% exemption on anything over 5 megawatts, up to just under 150 megawatts from your local machinery and tools tax. Um, some of the nuances in that, though, is once it gets above 25 megawatts, by law, you don't apply your machinery and tools tax rate. You apply your underlying real estate rate, which in most counties is going to be less there are some exceptions, but then there's even a, a further kind of uh, a thing here that, that has an effect on local finances, which is anything above 25 megawatts in size, the SEC does the valuation in terms of, you know, how you determine uh, your tax rate. So give an example, say a, a 50 megawatt facility is coming in in your jurisdiction. Uh, and the cost of construction is $100 million. And that's a, that's a good ballpark average because what we've seen is about $2 million per megawatt. They have this depreciation schedule where the first five years of the existence of, of that facility, they depreciate it by 90%, but then they kind of aggressively go down then by year 23, 24, and it bottoms out at about 10%. Um, when you combine that with the mandatory 80% exemption, you can see that it really has a declining uh, revenue source for the localities. Um, one of the things that is interesting about it, though, is unlike regular equipment, machinery uh, uh, equipment for, say, manufacturing for something, you know, in this case, they're manufacturing for energy, you know, equipment typically will run out 7 to 10 years, and you replace it, and you start the depreciation schedule over again. But our understanding is that the panels themselves, their capacity only reduces roughly uh, about anywhere from a half percent to just under 1% a year. So there's no need to replace these panels. So over 35 years, you might be at 90% production. So why would you replace the panels? So it's generating that income, but yet it's being kind of devalued at 10%. So that's kind of uh, where we are. Um, you know, VACO has, has been involved in this issue. Um, there was a bill last year uh, that we supported that for those larger projects, greater than 20 megawatts, and I think we're really seeing these 50 and above and up to 150, 
it would have um, moved a sunset date on the mandatory exemption. So the current sunset date says that if you're not in, um, begin construction by January 1st, 2024, um, you don't get the mandatory 80% exemption in that 20 to 150 megawatt range. Of course, abo above 150 megawatts, it's a local option on what the tax incentive uh, should be. This bill last year was going to move that up to uh, January 1st, 2020. It did not um, survive uh, uh, in the in committee, um, but VACO is going to be pushing to re return that back, um, you know, that authority. And, and the best way to think of this is, you know, um, most localities are saying yes to these facilities because there are some benefits uh, in terms of, you know, investment in a county. Um, you compare it with um, what we've seen in some data centers. You've seen that recently in Chesterfield where they've done that. So it's kind of an economic development thing. So. What we're saying is really give the localities that authority, which they do have under law, to determine what the right incentive would be, particularly as you look at that depreciation schedule for these larger projects. Um, you know, I'll note, um, you know, for, for wind, there is no mandatory exemption. There was recently a facility that was permitted in Botetourt County, a 75-megawatt wind mm -hmm. facility. And not only that, um, that's taxed at the machinery and tools rate. There's an exception under law where... Uh, the wind turbines uh, don't have to go to that real estate rate. And what the Botetourt County Board of Supervisors did is say, hey, look, we'll set a rate that's reasonable because we want to see this type of a, a development. So what we're hopeful for, you know, moving forward um, is getting that authority back. And then at the same time, you know, keeping that local authority um, in determining how you address the land use impacts. Because, uh, you know, you and I have seen these things. We, it's a couple hundred acres. You know, there's ways you can make it fit in. But now when you're talking thousand square acres or square miles, miles there's, yeah. yeah, and, you know, and kind of a funny thing going back to the stormwater, um, you know, one of the things that we found out is that the Department of Environmental Quality has determined that the panels themselves are pervious surface, which is kind of curious to it us. <laughs> you know, the actual pylon is impervious. And I kind of relate it to, you know, I live here in the city of Richmond, and I have a stormwater utility fee. This kind of goes back to that issue. Localities are on the hook for stormwater, and, and it's based on the impervious surface. You know, how much of, you know, if I have a driveway, sidewalk, um, or my roof line, that the, the water runs off that. So, you know, what if I put a solar panel up there? Could I then say that's pervious surface and get a credit <laughs> right. for that? I, you know, what we have seen, and, and I think one of the things that we'll put up on our website is a link to what Minnesota has done, and, and this kind of makes sense. And, and they even say it's to comply with the federal law on stormwater is they've kind of classified these things as impervious disconnected surfaces in terms of calculating the runoff. And that makes sense because you're not necessarily channelizing the flow, but they are running off the sheet. And, you know, localities, if they're their own, uh, what we call a VSMP authority, that, you know, it's not delegated to DEQ, I think you can make that determination. But I think all through this, also through the special use permit process, we can, we can see that. I don't know if you've heard anything about that from DEQ. And we, maybe you could talk a little bit about also DEQ and their uh, permit by rule application. Sure. Well, you know, I, I have not heard a whole lot about that from DEQ, but it is a curious topic. Um, it is a it is an interesting kind of twist on a definition that I know that you and I have both been kind of laughing about and scratching our heads over. Um, but but to your second question, the the permit by rule. Um, for those that know, uh, the permit by rule or the PBR process is a way for smaller renewable energy uh, facilities to kind of avoid the, I guess the. Uh, the more uh, technical and the more the 
onerous SEC process um, when it comes to actually getting the permit for these facilities. Um, and over the course of this, uh, this summer and fall, they actually convened a stakeholder group to re-examine their PBR program, uh, covering everything from kind of the size of the facilities they're looking at to, um, you know, the permitting fees that they're looking at or how to, you know, rank the permits or how do you uh, address land use considerations, you know, everything from agricultural land to industrial land. Um, and I know, Joe, you've been sitting on that uh, for the last couple of months. So do you have any idea of, you know, where they're going from here? Yeah, you know, it's, it is interesting because one of the things that uh, it's it's an interesting kind of process so it, you know rather than going through the SEC where you know you have the judges determine you know what's the certificate for public need what the state did several years ago was say hey look let's go ahead and take that out of that process because we want to encourage renewable energy uh, and so you go to DEQ and essentially as long as you address kind of the environmental and historic impacts uh, to any of these facilities you get this letter which is basically a permit and goodness, I think, you know, we've seen the queue in, in the PBR go oh, yeah. up in, incredibly. And, you know, um, it's been a burden actually on the DEQ staff, which they, I think they have one staff person. Yeah, and this staff is not their entire journey <laughs> of staff. But they also have to farm out some of the, um, the review of these things to the Department of Historic Resources, to DCR's Natural Heritage Resource Program. You also involve a little bit of Department of Game and Inland Fisheries. Because you know, things you want to avoid when you're, you're doing so much of this is could there be a, a, a threat to some sort of endangered or threatened species, but also a lot of historic resources when you start covering this much land. And so part of what they're doing is they're trying to set these fees to help that pay for that cost. And so what's the right number? I think there's some tension in the, the, um, uh, the industrial solar community. If these numbers go too high, that they just may say, you know, well, we'll go to the um, SCC process, and, and kind of the odd thing about that, if they go through the SCC process, the SCC then goes back to DEQ and all these agencies and asks for a review, and right. so how do they get compensated? So I think that's a, a nut to crack. You know, part of what we've really been pushing for, and I know Christy been pinching in there, is to make sure that there's some coordination on when they go to this notice of intent, because mm -hmm. we've had this situation, and it's not, doesn't happen all the time, where all of a sudden, uh, it goes on the regulatory website for DEQ. Says, "Hey, notice of intent to put, you know, fifty-eight, you know, fifty megawatts on, you know, a thousand acres of land uh, in, you know, X county," and the county itself hasn't heard about it because you have to right. go through the through the land use process. And, and one thing that's that's critical to understand here is that prior to actually making their full submission, they have to show that it complies with all local land use laws, and so you really have to get that SUP. The other thing is if a project gets modified, so say you've already got your letter, if it gets modified, they're tweaking ways, you know, if it's a minor modification, you know, you know, we can go ahead and issue, reissue the permit. But what we want to make sure is that they're contacting the locality again before they issue that, because particularly if they increase the megawatt size, then really it should be a major permit sure. application and make sure it complies with the local local law. Sure. So, yeah. I will note on that too, um, kind of pulling it back to what we first started talking about when it came to this budget announcement. Um, about a year ago, or, so, or maybe two years at this point, uh, Governor Northam uh, released Executive Order 6, which directed a full-on needs assessment for DEQ. And in particular, looking at, you know, what the staffing level was, what the resources were, what technical assistance was available, and what needed to be changed, what needed to be improved. Um, so yesterday he actually announced that in his uh, 
yet to be introduced budget that $25 million would be going towards um, increasing the efficiency and responsiveness uh, in DEQ for their permitting uh, processes, for their various environmental uh, protection programs, and to improve public and local government engagement. Um, so it's it's clear that in the last year or so, through groups like this PBR, a stakeholder group, and then just through other EO6 or even more informal conversations that they have recognized um, that there's kind of a glaring lack uh, at DEQ with what they're able to work with, and they really want to actually improve it and step up. Yeah, and, that, and I think that'll help a lot of our members in terms of, you know, getting permits through for economic development, mm -hmm. but also assisting localities, particularly on, on some of these projects. Well, great, great. Well, you know, I think we've covered kind of uh, kind of the hot topics here I think today. So. Uh, you know, we'll be following all these um, issues moving forward in the General Assembly and outside of the General Assembly. Absolutely. Uh, as I go on. So, well, thank you, Chris, uh, and uh, for this edition of the Baco County Pulse. And stay tuned. Absolutely. Take care, y'all.